0: Our sermon text for this morning, Romans chapter 15, verses 1 through 7. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. The grass withers and the flowers fade. But the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your word how it speaks to us, how it reads into the depths of our hearts and our thoughts. We ask that you guide us this morning, Lord. Teach us, feed us, equip us. Help us, Lord, to know you and to walk faithfully before you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. We're gonna take a break from Revelation today, uh, which I'm really disappointed because I was all set to tell you what 666 means and who the mark of the, what the mark of the beast is. But you know, I'm not the boss here, so we're gonna to go to Romans instead. And this is this is a passage that has been sticking in my mind for a while. I, I'm just intrigued by the wording of Paul here, and the more time I've spent with this, the more I realize this really isn't enough of the passage, we really could conclude all of chapter 14 into this, but I wanted to spare you from reading that whole chunk and just focus on this, but I'm going to bring in 14 as well, quite a bit of it actually. This is a, this is a message about the church. I hope you love the church. I hope you value the church, and I trust that just by the bare fact that you're here, that, that says something positive in that direction. All of us come to church with ideas about what it should look like how it should function, what our role should be in it, and so forth, which is why it's so important for us to keep coming back to Scripture to see and understand how God meant it to be. Romans 12, 1 and 2 should be sort of a, a touchstone for us to keep going back to. Do not be conformed to this world anymore, any longer, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. I take Paul to mean there not just simply understand what God calls sin and agree with that, in contrast to what culture says, but to recognize that all of our thoughts, all of our conceptions are mired in the earth that we have been brought up in. Even the way that we think about church, our tendency to think about church is often shaped by what we see around us, by corporations, by clubs, Sometimes families, and while family is certainly a good thing in the eyes of the Lord, and even family is one of the pictures that Scripture gives us of the church, even our family, our understanding of family, has flaws in it, right? When we start from ourselves. We need to set our sights higher. We need to listen better to what God is saying and help him to direct us. Otherwise, we risk going in ways that are at best unhelpful and worse destructive, as we'll see in our passage this morning. So let's, let's consider the context here. You can turn back to Romans 14. We're not going to read it, but I'm going to, to sort of summarize what's going on here. Paul was writing to a church that was having some struggles. Uh, we, we find a couple of those named in this letter. One is, is what we could call ethnic struggles in chapters 2 and 3. And that, that, was, that was because of the, the fact that in the early years, the church was primarily made up of Jewish converts. And if you're familiar with the gospel story, that's not surprising. Jesus came from the Jews. His disciples were Jews. They started in Jerusalem and Judea and went out from there. So it would be natural to understand that that's where it started from. If you were to walk into the first churches, it would be primarily Jewish. But as the word went out, as the gospel went out, something began to happen. These Gentiles came in. Gentiles and Samaritans and all sorts of people were coming and respond in response to the gospel that's gone out, and the composition of the church was changing. And that was troubling. It was troubling. What, what do we do with these people? We're glad we're, they're here, but, but there was something different, particularly for the Jews. And if you're familiar with the New Testament at all, one of the key questions was not whether or not it's okay for people outside the Jewish people to come into the Christian faith, but they, they, but they were only welcome if they first became like the Jews, if they adopted Jewish practices and customs. But, but Acts blew that all up. Actually, that's not necessary anymore. We're not going to require that anymore. In fact, it took a giant council in Jerusalem to decide that. We will not require this of Gentiles. They can come in. But that was profoundly troubling because a Jew would look at this and say, our whole heritage feeds into our faith. The fact that we are part of the chosen people of God. We have the covenant, we have the priesthood, we have the temple, the tabernacle, we have all these things, the Messiah is a Jewish Messiah. How do we give this up? To let them in seems to cheapen what we've been given. And and our people suffered for these things. Our people died to hold on to these things and now they don't matter? And so there's a struggle there. What do we do? What do we do with these people? How do, we ex- how do we accept them? And what if they become more numerous than us? Where will they take this church? If you've been with a church for any length of time, certainly any church plant goes through this, that, that's something that will happen in, in years two, three, and four. The church that you started with is not the church that you find yourself a few years later. And that can be profoundly unsettling. Who are all these new people? What happened to the church we started? What happened to the church I love? I think some of that tension's at play here. But the other other struggle was a theological struggle in chapters 14 and leading into our passage today, and Paul highlights two of these. One was a debate over food. Are there certain foods we should avoid or are we free to eat whatever we want? The other was a debate over the observance of certain days. Are there certain days that we should consider special or holy, or are we free to do whatever we want? On the face of it, that, doesn't sound like much. Both of those things are not really important things for us, but we have to keep in mind that many of these people were coming out of backgrounds, pagan backgrounds, that had their own customs and traditions, and these were the things that mattered. What days do we observe? We always used to celebrate these days. These were important to us, not just as pagans, fill in the blank, pagan religion, But it's important to our identity, to our heritage, to our tradition. This is what our parents handed down to us. Those are important, right? What do we need to let go of? What can we hold on to? And conversely, from the Jewish side, what do we need to require of them in order to accept them in? By the time Paul wrote this letter, Things had turned a bit nasty. You get a couple hints of that here. First in 14.1. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. Just sounds like a lovely introduction to a church, right? Welcome. What's your stance on food? Welcome. Which days do you celebrate? How's Christmas for you? Merry Christmas. Aha. Gotcha. Happy New Year. What do you mean by that? All of a sudden, there's this, there's this testing, just as people are coming in the door. And it was, it was, it was testing the sense of, can we trust these people? Are they one of us? Do we accept them or not? What's even worse than that? We see verse 3, a little bit further down, Paul says this, Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. There's no mere difference of opinion, this was a looking down on those who were different than what we, the church, held. We don't do that here, we don't eat that here. You either need to become like us, or you're not part of us. It's it's worth taking a a moment to step back and ask ourselves, what, what is going on here, really? The easy answer is to say they were just being mean and petty, and lots of people do that. Lots of people ding the church then as now for for just being a bunch of mean, uptight people. But I think there's a better way to understand that. It's a way that takes a little bit more work. It takes treating people as people and taking people with a grain of salt and giving them the benefit of the doubt and all that, which I think leads us to the more likely answer that this was a church who was zealous to be a faithful church. We are here, I hope, a church that is zealous to be a faithful church. Amen? We want to know the one true God. We want to understand his word. We want to live according to that, right? That's what we profess every Sunday. That's what we profess with our lives. That's what we profess through our families and in our work and everything. They wanted to do things the right way. They wanted to uphold biblical standards. And they wanted to weed out, therefore, unbiblical beliefs and practices. We do have to make a break from the world. We are a holy people after all. And we ought to take that seriously. To one extent or another, this is how every church functions. We may not we may or may not argue about which days or foods are right for Christians to eat or enjoy or to observe, but we have plenty of other standards that we measure faithfulness by, don't we? How we worship. What kind of music Ought we to play? Do we have instruments or not? What kind of liturgy? What's the shape of our liturgy? Formal, informal? What what should our families look like? What what should the nature of husband and wife relationships be if we're truly Christians? What should the relationships between, between parents and children look like if we are really the called ones of God? What does discipline look like in our homes? What kind of schooling options are available for us as Christians or not? How about how we relate to culture? How we dress? What we watch or listen to? Our politics? What kinds of things are Christians able to do or not able to do? What if someone answers wrongly here? Are they accepted or not? How do we treat them? Who are our favorite teachers and ministries? All of these, when we go back to verse one, all of these can easily become tests for people who come into the church, can't, aren't, can't they? Oh, that's an interesting book, what are we reading? Who's that? Oh, Rob Bell, hmm, interesting, interesting. Not to say that these are bad things. We, we should be seeking to apply God's word to our life in all the different ways. That we we encounter it. We should be faithful and careful and deliberate and serious about these things. Yet it's often the case that our pursuit of faithfulness can become an engine of division and destruction in the church. I've been in church ministry a long time. I've worked with a lot of different churches, and the most heartbreaking situations are largely driven by people who think they are doing the right thing, that they're being faithful which makes it all the harder to reach them and say, you're destroying everything. No, we're being faithful to God. That's the cost of faithfulness. And like the Roman church, I'm not sure that we're ready for how Paul responds to this. Here's I'm gonna summarize three points here. First one, Paul says to them, and I'll show you why, where I get this in a minute. First, I see Paul saying to them, "It's not your church. You belong to the church, but the church belongs to God." Follow me here, For, uh, chapter 14, verse 4. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? Who are you? Well, faithfulness. We're doing. Our, who are you to do this? Verse twelve. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. And verse twenty-two, the faith you have, keep between yourself and God. There, there's a there's a some terminology here: strong and weak. That that I puzzled with for a long time, but I, I think the best way to understand this terminology is the strong are the ones who are already in place in the church. This is our church. This, is, this belongs to us. We are the ones standing as the, the guardians of the church. We're the ones who have created this place. We've worked hard. We've contributed, sacrificed for this. This is our place. And the weak are the ones who are coming into this. And Paul is saying these things to the strong. Who are you to pass judgment? Let us not pass judgment. The faith you have, keep between yourself and God. That's hard to hear. Because it strikes against that burden that we feel, that no, if we are to be faithful, then we need to be faithful all the way through. If we see something wrong, we have to say something, right? We need to protect what God has made here. But he says this as well. As for the weak, he says this to the strong, you need to keep these things in mind. Verse 15, God has redeemed them through Jesus' death. Verse 15, uh, for if your brothers grieve by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love by what you eat. Do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. Verse three, God has welcomed them. Third, verse 10, God will judge them. Who are you to judge? They stand before God as much as you do. Now that, that feels like some scary statements because that sounds like he's just throwing it open to do whatever you want here. But I think what he's pointing, pointing them to and pointing us to is that we can, if we are not careful, in our desire to be faithful, remove God from the equation altogether and act as though we're the God of the church. And what Paul is saying is, you need to let God rule his church. It doesn't mean we say nothing, but we don't tend to err on that side of things. We tend to err on the side of saying too much. He's saying, if God has welcomed them, then they are welcomed here. This is not your church, this is God's call. Incredibly challenging because that is not how we're wired. He's going to say something a little bit later on in chapter 15, that we, are, we, are, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. That sounds strange because a faithful person would know we're not here to please ourselves. And yet, And yet, if we strive to be faithful, how often do we tend to aim for a church that we would enjoy, that we feel safe in, that we feel good about? which necessarily excludes anyone who doesn't agree with that picture. It's not our church. It's God's church. He is the one who brings us together, which can make it messy at times. Praise the Lord. It's not your church, first one. Second thing that it says, this picks up in our passage for today, you are not to be the guardians of the church, But it's big brothers and big sisters. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. It's your obligation. It's your duty as a Christian. If you belong to Christ, if you have drawn near to God through his death, your obligation is to bear with those who are weak, who are coming in. What's that mean? That, that, second, that second part of the sentence is really key here. It, it means even bearing with their failings. We are to engage with them as they are and not as what we wish they would be. There's actually a lot of overlap here between parenting and living life in the church. That's one of the hard lessons I've had to learn. Maybe, maybe some of you as parents have had to learn. I, I, parent, to what I, I parent that my kids is going to what I want them to be and not where they are. I confuse the two, and therefore I lose patience. I get frustrated. I look at other families and wish my kids were like theirs, or in the context of the church. I don't like this. These people make my life difficult. These are not the people I want in my church. Why are our people like those people? But God says, that's not your job. You are to receive those whom I have welcomed into this church, and you are to care for them. You're to bear with them. That doesn't mean just put up with their nonsense. That means to endure with them, to help them, to walk them through the, the, the trail, the path of growth that each of us must be on. And this is, this is really important, too, because if you know anything about people, if you have any experience with people, they do not change like that very often. Right? How many of you have had convictions just change like that? Someone says, well, you're wrong. Oh, okay. Great. I'm convinced. For most of us, if not all of us, the most significant changes of mind, of habit, of life have come over time. Often painfully. Because that's what it takes to wake us up, to help us to see. And if the people who are helping us don't have any patience, does that help us? Or does it tend to add to our resentment and bitterness and push us away? Remember how God deals with us. As far as the heavens are from the earth, so great is his love towards us. As far as the east is from the west, so he removes our sin from us. As a father has compassion on his, as father has compassion on his child, so God has compassion on those who fear him. Because he knows we are dust. Have we forgotten that we are dust? Dealing with dust. Bear with the failings of the weak. Welcome them. Rejoice in them. Encourage them. Help them. Yes, correct them. But our aim is for their good and not my picture or your picture of what we think the church should be. That's how Jesus lived and died which is important, because sometimes that's hard, and sometimes our help is not always appreciated. And and although we may hate to admit it, our patience is not as great as we want it to be. We give up way too easily at times, because people are hard. But Jesus endured the cross gladly for our sake. He dealt with our failings in the flesh, God continues to be patient with us, to guide us, to provide for us, to pour out his blessings on us, patiently, even though we fight again and again against it. We are not the guardians of the church, but the big brothers and the big sisters of those who he is bringing in. And then lastly, let me give you two, uh, two college-level words here. Harmonious versus homogeneous. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Harmony is a great word. I love that word. It's such an important word. Brings to mind the singing of a choir, all the different parts. Playing their roles, not just playing their notes and, 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 and playing their parts, but also the dynamics of working with one another, one of the things that the church has lost in moving away from harmonizing is that and, and bringing things up on stage is that it 's given weaker singers the excuse not to sing at all because they think i 'm not good at singing. The beauty of a choir is that you get enveloped and be able, and are able to participate in that, and no one notices because. Singing is a dynamic act. It's not a, who are the best singers here? We sing not to our strengths only, but also to each other's weaknesses. We carry each other, right? We, we build each other up, and the sum of that work is glorious, isn't it? Any of you who have sung in a choir or played in a band? It's wonderful when you can do that. We see that in sports as well. We see all these different parts, a well-executed or well-designed play carried out. Not everybody is a star, but if we're all working together, we cover for our weaknesses, and we carry it out, and we all together grow. We all together benefit. We see that in food. You, You can take some of the most despised food on the menu, Brussels sprouts, but with the right combinations with the right amount of skill you can compose a dish that is wonderful and glorious that covers up for the weakness of the Brussels sprout and I am I am a big Brussels sprout fan so it pains me to say these things but (laughs) but you get my point we're meant to work together And that's really the spirit of what Paul says in other places. In Ephesians 4, 15. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. If we fail to recognize this, we are just in a regular, continual process of amputating our body and gutting it, and wondering why we're struggling. We're to look at this differently. I even love the, the meaning behind the word harmony. It's, it, the meaning is uh, the concord of sounds, and concord itself is not just peace, but this idea of hearts together. One heart, one voice One mind, one purpose. One mind, even when we we disagree. One voice, strong and weak, singing together. One purpose, that we might live lives marked by gratitude and joy in the one who called all of us out of darkness into his glorious light. It's God's picture of the church. Not homogenous, but harmonious. Not all the same, but one mind, one voice together. In order to do this, the seemingly impossible thing, Paul exhorts us to lean heavily on the help of God. Not just our Father God, but the God of all endurance and encouragement. God who has endured us, who endures with us, whose patient, his steadfast love towards us never fails even those moments when you don't feel close to him, even those seasons where prayer is hard and reading the Bible is hard and your witness is cold and you don't feel close to God, even then his love does not diminish towards us. Right? Unfailing, faithful, steadfast, patient. We look to that God and draw from that in order to deal with each other the same way. He doesn't just deal with us, he encourages us take the next step. What do you learn from this? How can I help? I'm proud of you. I love you. I will never leave you or forsake you. How do we draw on that resource ourselves and give that to those around us? That is the church that God intends. That is the church that God is building and calls us to be a part of. Let's pray. Well, Lord, please help us. We, we, are, we are so grateful for you and for the work that you have accomplished through Christ on the cross to bring us into the fold of your people. We know we don't belong here. We know we don't deserve to be here. But for your grace, but for your mercy, and not only forgiving us but giving us the full privileges of sons and daughters. Lord, you love us without end. You you give us everything we need for life and godliness. You are there with us through every moment of our lives. You know our past, our present, and where we're going. And you love us. You're not ashamed to be called our God. Lord, as much as we rejoice in that, may we learn how to share that with those around us. We praise you, Lord for the church that you are building, even though at times we don't understand it. But our prayer is not that you bring the right people, but that you make us the right church. Please help us, Lord, to live faithfully as you have called us to. Help us, Lord, to set aside our own projects, our own preferences, our own desires, and treat one another as those that you have welcomed, that you have died for, that you have redeemed, that you will judge. And help us, Lord, together to join our various voices in one song, one hymn of praise and adoration to you. To the praise of your glorious grace we pray.